can go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to return to our study there. We'll read our text together and then we'll pray before we dive into God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 10 specifically, but I'd like to read the passage in its entirety starting in verse 1. This is God's Word read in our presence this morning. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Lord, as we've sung this morning, our souls ought to wonder that you have saved sinners like us. And I pray, God, that the glorious grace of your gospel would produce in us a sensitivity to our own sin and a desire to rid ourselves of it. Lord, I sense this morning the same feelings that I think Isaiah had, recognizing he's a man of unclean lips. But Lord, I know that you're able to purify and use and speak through even imperfect people like us. So we pray, God, that this morning your word would go forth with power, with clarity, and it would have its intended effect in our hearts for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The book of Colossians tells us that Jesus Christ is supreme. He is the creator and sustainer of the world. And there's no one greater. There's no one like him. But Jesus is also the redeemer of all who believe. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has secured forgiveness for our sins and has reconciled us to the Father and raised us to newness of life. We've celebrated that this morning as we've taken the Lord's Supper together. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. And praise God that our salvation is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our good works, our good behavior, It's not dependent on us seeking to keep the law. It's not dependent upon external rituals that we perform. It's not even found in some mystical experience, some secret knowledge that we seek outside of Jesus Christ. We are complete in Christ and therefore destined for glory. But in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us that as those who have new life in Christ, how we live matters. How we live matters. We must live in a way that reflects who we are and reflects where we are headed. Last time in Colossians together, we considered the biblical priority found in verse 5 of putting sin to death. Scripture tells us that there is a war going on inside us, and it is kill or be killed. 
Our killing of indwelling sin is to be decisive. It is to be comprehensive. And Paul gives us a sobering reason for the necessity of this war against sin. In verse 6, he tells us it's because of sins like these that the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, such sins deserve eternal hell and cannot be tolerated or minimized or excused in the lives of believers. But then Paul gives us a second reason that we as Christians must take action against the sin in our lives. Not just because the wrath of God is coming, verse 6. Not just because of the wrath of God, but also because of the grace of God. We find the grace of God in verses 7 through 10. That'll be our text for this morning. Paul reminds us here of the great change that has been brought about in our lives because of Jesus. A change accomplished solely by God's grace. It's through the work of Christ on the cross that we who believe have been transformed. And this gracious change brings with it implications for how we must live. So we want to look this morning at Paul's exhortation, and then we'll look at the two reasons to obey that bracket this command. So the exhortation is very simply this. Number one, we must put off the sin that characterized our old life. You and I, if we're believers, must put off the sin that characterized our old life. Verses seven, he says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. The command to put away sin, just like the command to put to death sin, is a decisive act. And to put off here is really the idea of casting off dirty clothing. If you're out working hard with your hands and your clothes are soaked with sweat and grime and two days worth of not showering and dirt and grease and drywall dust and oil and whatever else it is that you're working with, you don't bring those clothes into the house. At least not if you live in my house. Those things get taken off in the garage. Those things get thrown. Well, first they probably get rinsed off in the backyard. And then they get brought into the house and put through the wash. But you don't just keep wearing those clothes. And that's Paul's point here. To cast off, to take off those things that characterize our old life. The sins mentioned in this list that Paul gives are not to be tolerated. They're to be thrown away. They're not to be excused. They're to be expelled. They're not to be continued in but to be cast off as those who've been forgiven from the penalty of our sin. And as those who've been set free from the power of sin, we are to actively engage in ridding ourselves of the very presence of those sins in our lives. This emphasis is found throughout the New Testament. In Romans 13, verse 12, there Paul tells us, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness. And put on the armor of light. In Hebrews 12.1, the author of Hebrews writes, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter writes, To put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put off, put away, lay aside, cast off. This is what we are to do. The command is clear, and you and I cannot be passive in this endeavor. Paul gives us here a list, a representative list of various sins. And this list has primarily to do 
with our interpersonal relationships. Two weeks ago, we looked at a list that had very much to do with, with sins of the body, sexual sins. This, is, this second list here in verse 8 and 9 has to do with our relationships. And this is important, isn't it? Because sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. We all know this, don't we? That even though our sin is first and foremost against God, sin always affects other people. Like the list in verse 5, such sins begin in the heart and eventually manifest themselves in wicked actions. The first two items on the list are anger and wrath. We find these in verse 8. Anger refers to the emotional state of our hearts when we are provoked. And you guys know that feeling, don't you? You know that, that hot feeling boiling up inside, that burning anger. The word that pairs with it here is very similar. The word translated wrath is the outburst of that emotion. So some of you guys are really good at being angry and putting on a smile. So anger is, is like that lurking beneath the surface, boiling up you know, that, that anger. But wrath is the outburst of that emotion. It's the eruption of rage. Because usually someone or something is the object of our anger, right? We usually are angry at something or someone. We're rarely just angry in general. And Paul says to put off anger and to put off wrath. Really, the right to feel this way belongs to God and not us. It's interesting, the word translated anger here in verse 8 is the same word that was translated wrath in verse 6. On account of these, the former list of sins, the wrath of God is coming. So the right to feel this way belongs to God. But it is inappropriate for you and I to be angry and wrathful. Why is that? Well, several reasons. Unlike us, God has the right to render judgment. That's his job. He is the judge of all the earth. Unlike us, God is always perfectly under control. He never loses it. God's wrath and anger is not a result of him flying off the handle. It is under control, calculated. And unlike us, God's anger is always perfect, always pure, and never tainted, even to the slightest degree, by sin. His wrath is always righteous. Ours isn't. Our anger is far too often the loss of control. Our anger is seldom righteous because our anger typically revolves around our glory and not God's. Around our comforts, our rights, my plans, my expectations. So what is right for God as the perfectly holy and just judge is dangerous business for people like you and me. Commentator James Dunn points out that it is such a powerful emotion, only God can be trusted to exercise it fairly. So we're commanded here to put off anger and wrath. You know, we may not take anger very seriously. It's very much a, a respectable sin, to use Jerry Bridges' terminology. You know that some of the sins listed um, in verse uh, 5, those are sins that obviously we would never want to tolerate in the church. But short tempers and impatience and anger, harsh words, those are things that do get tolerated. We don't think it's that big a deal because we say, well, everybody gets mad once in a while, right? Or, well, I have a right to be angry because it's someone else's fault, it's always someone else's fault when I'm angry. I wouldn't be angry if you hadn't backed into the mailbox. I wouldn't be angry if you hadn't said those things 
to me or about me. I wouldn't be angry if you had just kept your promise. I wouldn't be angry if you hadn't ruined my plans or cost me money or made things so difficult or hurt my feelings. But Galatians chapter 5 tells us that fits of anger belong to the works of the flesh. It comes from within us and is not a mark of one who walks in submission to and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God takes anger very, very seriously. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, Jesus continues, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, whether it's in our marriages, whether it's towards our kids, whether it's on the highway, whether it's at work, or whether it's in the church, we need to confess our anger as sin, and we need to put it off. Practically, how do we deal with that? I mean, what does this look like to put off anger? Because this is something that's often a response and a reaction to what's going on around us. And you're not going to be able to conquer anger by making sure that nobody ever does anything to make you angry. Good luck with that. You can't control the world. So how do we practically deal with these situations that provoke us to anger? Well, this could be its own separate sermon, and I'm going to resist the temptation to go off on a rabbit trail and teach a topical lesson on anger. But I do want to give just a couple hopefully helpful practical comments. If you want to deal with anger, first of all, you have to be ready to forgive. And this is a matter of obedience. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is like the fire hose that puts out the blazing furnace of anger and wrath. And we're commanded to forgive. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If you and I are going to beat anger, we have to be ready and willing to forgive because people are going to sin against us. Secondly, we have to learn to leave justice to God. We know the phrase in Romans 12 where Paul says that vengeance is God's. He quotes the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This requires faith on our part. It requires humility on our part to recognize that vengeance belongs to God and not to me. And it requires patience because God doesn't always render vengeance at the exact moment I want him to. At the exact moment where I want to see it happen. So we have to leave justice to God. But perhaps finally and most importantly underneath both of these. If you and I are going to beat anger we have to repent of our idolatry. Anger really is a worship issue. The reason we get angry. Why do we get angry? Well when we get angry when our desires are opposed. When our pride is injured. When our sovereignty is challenged. That sounds like me trying to be God, doesn't it? James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, that's a word for strong desires, even lusts, you could say, these consuming desires. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
anything that you and I desire so strongly that we sin when we don't get it or that, that, that we sin when it's lost. That is an idol. Anger is always a worship issue. If you want to beat anger, you must repent of your idolatry. There's a lot more that could be said about that, but I just want to underscore this simple command in our text. We must put off anger and wrath. But Paul goes on, after anger and wrath comes malice. Malice. Unlike anger and wrath, which can be good when God is demonstrating them, and in, I think in rare situations, we can even have a kind of a righteous anger. We don't have time to get into that today. But unlike anger and wrath, malice refers to something that is always and only evil. There's never a right or appropriate time for us to be malicious. And God is never malicious. Malice is when anger and wrath have metastasized into bad and evil intentions. And this evil in our heart must be put off. In James 1.21, James tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's the same word that's translated here as malice. Do you ever find yourself wanting something bad to happen to someone? Taking delight in their misfortune? Feeling good about their failure, their suffering? Maybe it's a rival, a competitor at work. Maybe it's a politician or an activist who's on a different team than the one that you root for. That's probably practical as we get ready to launch into another election season. Maybe it's someone who hurt you, someone who wronged you. Friends, malice does not please God. It does not reflect Christ. It belongs to the kingdom of darkness and must be put off. Put off anger, wrath, and malice. That desire for bad things to happen to people. The next three sins in this list move on from the realm of our disposition, the realm of the heart, to the realm of our speech. Just like the list of sins in verse 6, sin that starts in the heart always works its way out, doesn't it? What did Jesus tell us? Out of the abundance of the, of, of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. As the old farmer saying goes, what comes up in the bucket is usually what's down in the well. Sin in the heart always comes out. And most often our mouths are the first way that we express our anger, our wrath, and our malice. If we harbor anger and wrath and malice in our hearts, what will come across our tongue and our lips is, Paul says, slander. Slander. And he says we are to put off slander. Slander refers to words or speech that profanes and dishonors another. It's interesting. This is the same word that's translated blasphemy when it's directed towards God. Blasphemeo is the word for slandering someone. But our words must not be used to revile others. Proverbs 10.18 says, whoever utters slander is a fool. Is a fool. James gives us some weighty reasoning why slander is wrong. And, and I love it when the Bible tells us not just what we should do, but why. So this is helpful. James chapter 3, James is talking about our words and the, and the destructive power of the tongue. And he says, with our tongue, with our speech, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. James's point is that it is wrong to curse those who bear the image of God. This is incredibly important for you and me 
Human dignity is not rooted in someone's ability. Human dignity is not rooted in someone's knowledge. Dignity is not rooted or based on their intelligence or their accomplishments or even on their behavior. Human dignity is rooted in the imago Dei, the image of God. And this is something that God takes very, very seriously. Psalm 101 verse 5 says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. There is no place for slander in the life of the Christian. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, To remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people, even the ones who make you angry, even the ones you don't like, even the ones who have hurt you. Slander, speaking evil of someone, is something we must put off. But he goes on, we put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and then obscene talk from your mouth. Obscene talk is more than just simply profanity, although it can include that, but is more broadly unholy language that's meant to tear other people down. Our words are not to be weaponized, to defile and destroy. Rather, our words are to be conveyors of grace. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Later on in Colossians, in chapter four, verse six, Paul will tell us, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. That's the opposite of obscene talk that corrupts, that defiles, that tears down, that destroys. That is the kind of behavior we must put off. Anger as an emotion grows into wrath. Wrath hardens into malice, and malice spills out as slander and obscene talk. And Paul says all such sin is to be put off. There's one more sin that Paul addresses here, and we find that in verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Do not lie. This final item on the list gets a little bit of extra emphasis and seems to not totally flow in the same sort of um, progression as the others. Why is that? Why does he give special attention to lying here? Well, I think a couple of reasons. First of all, lying as a sin is never alone, is it? Lying is never the only sin. Lying is always accompanied by other sins. Think about it. Why do you tell lies? Or why have you told lies? We lie to hide other sins, don't we? We lie as an expression of our greed to get what we want. Did you have a cookie yet? No, I didn't have any cookies yet. Right? I want another cookie. Don't tell lies to get cookies. Or don't cheat on your taxes to get more money. It's the same thing. We do not lie Uh, for no reason at all. We typically lie to hide other sins or to express things like greed or to express things like fear. We lie out of fear, don't we? To try to protect ourselves because we're afraid of what might happen if we tell the truth. But fear is unbelief. Fear is a failure to trust God. We lie out of pride. We lie to create and maintain a certain public image because we want to be seen a certain way. We want to be admired. We want to be appreciated. We want to be worshiped. 
to lust for personal glory. Lying is always hand in hand with other sins. And so here's the good news. When you refuse to lie, when you commit to always tell the truth, you are necessarily putting an ax to the root of other issues that are going on in your heart. But there's a second reason why I think lying gets special emphasis. Not only is lying never alone, but fundamentally lying is a betrayal of the truth and is antithetical to God's nature. Paul calls the gospel that we have believed in, in chapter 1, verse 5, the word of truth. The word of truth. He says these people have been growing in their faith since they heard the grace of God in truth. The gospel that we believe, the gospel we have received, the thing that is our hope of salvation is truth. For us to lie is a betrayal of the very gospel itself. And it's antithetical to God's nature. God does not and cannot lie. Jesus is said to be the way and the, you can say it out loud, it's okay, the truth and the life. And so Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. It's counter to his gospel and contrary to his character. Satan, on the other hand, John 8, 44 tells us, is a liar. And the father of lies. And I've told this to some of my children before. That when we lie, we are acting like Satan instead of acting like Jesus. When we lie, we're acting like Satan instead of the Christ we claim to believe in. No wonder God hates lying and says it's an abomination. But practically speaking, we can even go further. Lying is detrimental to human relationships, isn't it? Another reason why it should get special attention here. Notice that Paul says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. Stop lying to each other. And he says this not because it's okay to lie to people outside the church. That's not the point he's trying to make. He's saying it's because you are family and meant to live in harmony. Stop lying to each other because lying is detrimental to relationships. It damages relationships because it shatters trust. When someone lies to you once, it takes a long time to believe them again, even if they're telling the truth. The one who lies sees other people as either threats to be hidden from, or opponents to be deceived, or tools to be used. That's not a great way to make friends and strengthen relationships, is it? When you lie to someone, that's how you're treating them. And you know that when you've been lied to, that's how you feel. And that is detrimental to relationships. These are sins that we are commanded to put off. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene speech, and lying. But why? Why must we put off these sins? Paul gives us two reasons. Two reasons this morning why we must put off the sins that characterize our old life. First of all, that's who you used to be, Paul says. That's not who you are. Look in verse 7. He says, in these, kind of pointing ahead to the list he's about to give us, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. There's a time reference here in verse 7. In these in which you once walked, back in that former time in your life, back when you used to, to live that way and live among people who lived that way, back when that was just the road that you were on, those are the things you did. But now, 
But now things are different. That's who you used to be. But now put all these things away. That kind of lifestyle, those behaviors, Paul says that made sense back then when you were alienated from God. That kind of behavior made sense when you were in bondage to the domain of darkness. That kind of behavior is expected when you are spiritually dead. But now, now things are different. Well, what's different? What happened? Well, the reality is, if you are a believer in Christ, God did something. We find what God did back in chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. And you who were, formerly, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You were dead, Paul says, but now you are alive. So put off those things you used to do back when you were dead. Because now you are alive and there's a new kind of life that you are called to live. There's been a major change, a dramatic miracle of grace, so that who you used to be is no longer who you are. Same points made in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us so that who you were is no longer who you are. I love the beautiful way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, if this is not something that you've really understood and embraced, then you are missing an essential and powerful motive for change. The power for this battle against sin is grace. It's grace. It's the reality of a new life. For those of us who have experienced this inner change that God has performed, To put off sin is not a burden, but a privilege. It's a privilege to be called and empowered to change. Let me just say that if you have not experienced this inner change, then all of your efforts to curb your bad habits, to put off your sins, to put to death the sins that dwell in you, all your efforts will ultimately be futile. Because the reality is you lack the power to do it. You are still dead in your sins, spiritually. You are still a slave and in bondage to sin and to Satan. The power of the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you. And if you attempt such transformation without the help of God, you will be crushed by the weight and the burden of trying to keep God's law in the power of your flesh. You can't do it. You can't. And some of you have experienced that, haven't you? Many of us have. We've tried to to be a good person apart from Christ and found it frustrating 
instead of fulfilling. We found it maddening instead of freeing because it's literally impossible. We can have no victory over sin until we are made new in Christ. You need a new nature. You need the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You need the transforming work of Christ. You need God to redeem you and to make you a new creation. Because then and only then can the old pass away. Then and only then can all things become new. If you come to Christ and repent of sin and place your faith and trust in him alone as your savior, then this process of putting off sin, though admittedly still difficult, it will become ultimately successful. And you will experience the joy and the relief of victory over your sins. Then and only then will these words apply to you. Put off your former sins because this is no longer who you are. But there's a second reason why we're supposed to put off these sins. Not only is this not who we are, because it's who we were in the past, but secondly, that's not who we are becoming. So if, first of all, Paul looks to the past and says, that's not who you are anymore. Now he looks ahead to the future and says, that's not who you're becoming either. That's not who God intends you to be. We find this in verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, get this, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Formerly, before Christ, we were associated not with Jesus, but with Adam. Adam was the one who represented us. And it was Adam's nature that we shared and Adam's condemnation as well. When Adam fell into sin, he plunged the whole human race into sin. And so we stand with Adam before Jesus comes. But when Christ saves us, that old self is cast off. No longer are we in Adam. Now we are said to be in Christ and we become part of his body, the church. This is what Paul means when he says that we have put off the old self, verse 9, with its practices and have put on the new self. We have a new nature and therefore a new destiny. We are going to share in Christ's glory. And Paul says that this new self, this new nature, here in verse 10, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And this is really amazing to me. If you've read the book of Genesis, you'll hear an echo here of a reversal of sorts of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember how Adam and Eve in their rebellion, they reached for something, didn't they? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in reaching for knowledge, humanity fell into sin and corruption. And the result of that was that the image of God in us was distorted and twisted, and corrupted by sin. But now, through the knowledge of God in Christ, Paul says that humanity, redeemed humanity, is being renewed, and the image of our creator is being restored in us. God, by his grace, is making us into who we were always meant to be. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. God's purposes for you and me as believers is to make us fully and finally 
like his son, Jesus Christ. And this means that some serious change needs to take place, doesn't it? Some serious change. And that's what God is doing. That's what he's at work doing in us as he saves us and cleanses us and then begins this process of change. And it is a radical change. Jesus is not like an interior designer who shows up with a bucket of paint and some fresh decorations to sort of renovate your heart. No, Jesus is more like the contractor who shows up with a wrecking ball and a bulldozer. He's going to smash the whole thing and rebuild it from the ground up, completely new floor plan. It's a lot more than just a fresh coat of paint. And those who love Christ embrace this process. We don't resist it. We embrace the fact it is a joy and a privilege and a blessing that we are being remade to be like Jesus Christ. But unlike a construction project, This process of changing us to be like Christ isn't wrapped up in just a week or two or, you know, 42 minutes if you're watching a TV show on on cable television. This is an ongoing process that takes a lifetime. And it happens as we pursue Christ in obedience and faith. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's really an amazing thing as Christians, that some of us, is our, our bodies are breaking down. Our muscles are weaker than they've ever been before. But inwardly, we are more alive and stronger and healthier than we've ever been in our lives. That's a joy and a blessing. Day by day, all the way to the end of our lives, God is working this process in us of renewal and renovation. But here's the encouraging thing. Although we are called to be active and put off sin, And there's a command, definitely, that we must obey here. Ultimately, this process is something that God accomplishes. Notice what he says in verse 10, that we are being renewed. This is a passive verb, meaning that we are being acted upon. This is something we are receiving, something we are experiencing. And the one who is ultimately at work is not us, but God himself. That's encouraging to me. And we see that throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's doing. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is the one at work. This is God's plan, and he will finish the job. And so as those who are experiencing this and receiving this, we are called to submit and embrace and even participate in this process by putting off our sin, sin that does not reflect Christ, sin that is not in keeping with our new identity, and sin that has no place in God's purposes for us as his image bearers. We must put off sin because It's not who we are, and it's not who we are becoming. We ought to praise God this morning that our righteous standing before him is not due to the fact that we have never sinned. Aren't you thankful for that? We have all stumbled and failed. And amazingly, there will be people in hell for eternity who committed many of the same sins that we have. 
Our standing before God is based fully on the grace of Jesus Christ, on the fact that we have been made new in Christ. This is our hope. This is our confidence, and we can sleep soundly knowing that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. But we have to recognize that now God calls us to be true to our new identity, to live consistently with our new nature, to embrace the process of change as God remakes us into the image of Christ, our Savior. And no matter how rough and bumpy the journey may be, we can have hope this morning that this plan and purpose of God will ultimately be successful. I love 1 John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. My prayer for us this morning is if there's any here today who have not been made new, that you wouldn't just double down your efforts to stop some of your bad habits. Rather, you need to come to Christ and receive new life. Then you can join us in putting off sins. But for those of us who do know Christ, let's latch on to this hope and embrace the process of being purified by the power of the Spirit in obedience to Christ and for the honor of our Heavenly Father. Will you pray with me to that end? God in heaven, we thank you that because of Jesus, the penalty for our sin is paid and the power of sin is broken. I pray that you would now day by day renew us to make us more like Christ and empower us, enable us by your Holy Spirit to put off the sins that characterize our old life. That's amazingly and thankfully no longer who we are. And we believe your promise that that's not who we're going to be. So Lord, I pray that you'd help our lives to match up to our profession. Help us, as Paul says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord so that we reach full maturity in Christ. We pray that you would keep this priority always before us and that we would rely on your spirit in this pursuit. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.